Hi there, Journey. How you all doing today? Great. It's fantastic to be with every single one of you, especially if you're a guest. We're delighted to be in the presence of God, to worship Him, to glorify Him, to lift Him up today. And we've been praying that this time would be significant for every single one of you who are here today. Uh, I have told you on numerous occasions I'm a San Francisco 49ers fan. Get an amen? Yeah. And uh, uh, really the defining feature of San Francisco 49er fans uh, as a whole is one word, classy. San Francisco 49er fans are classy. Uh, We're classy in victory. We're classy in defeat. Uh, We're just classy. The ownership family, the York and DeBartolo family, they're just really classy people. And that just sort of encompasses all of San Francisco 49er fans the world over. Well, last week, the 49ers faced off against the Minnesota Vikings. No. Y- yeah, and, and uh, you know, because we're classy, uh, we let other teams win on occasion. <laughs> and so uh, the Vikings did de- defeat us. A- and just uh, kind of uh, to show how classless Vikings fans are, some of them stopped by my office uh, this week. There they are. These, these are actual employees Uh, of our church, uh, at least used to be employees of our church. (laughs) Uh, We'll be having some HR conversations about this, and and they just revealed their classless, baseless, uh, you know, rubbing my nose in, I'm telling them, good game. It was a a good game, and and, uh, they're laying on my desk. (laughs) The place where I hear from the Lord, and so, defiling it. Speaking of classless, and <laughs> so on a more, much more serious note, we're talking about Jesus for president, and Jesus for president is not at all an overtly political conversation. It is, though, a challenge for every single one of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus to be influencers over everything in our world. That means government. That means politics. And I'm here today to tell you that that influence probably looks different than you would expect it to look. But we remember back a few weeks ago when Jesus said, my kingdom is not what? Of this world. I'm helping you out. My kingdom is not of this world, he says. That means it doesn't look like we think it's going to look. It doesn't look like we expect it to look. It doesn't even sometimes look like we hope it looks. But believe it or not, his kingdom is breaking in. It's breaking through. And it doesn't look or feel like anything we necessarily expect it to look and feel like. And we're going to talk today about Jesus for president and how Jesus for president influences and how Jesus for president brings change to one of the favorite subject matters of every politician, and that's the Department of Education, America's public school system. And this past week, we had really the unfortunate occasion to interview our least favorite commentator who spewed more than a mouthful of his sulfuric venom about how he thinks about how he seeks to influence America's public schools, the students, the teachers, the leaders who are served and serve in them. And so, uh, with apologies, mm, here. Hey, you like my suit? I don't have the money for it. Just put it on a credit card. NBD. So, got plans tonight? What are you doing? Movie? Wine? Dinner? Call me, maybe? 
It's an election year, and there are many topics being debated. One of the biggest issues up for debate is education. There are two sides to every coin, and today we've found someone with very strong opinions about education. Lucifer, glad to have you with us here today. Thanks for being here. Glad to be here. Uh, just so you know, Lucifer's a little formal. You can go ahead and call him. So, Satan, a lot of people do not enjoy presidential election years with all the negative political ad campaigns and debates. What are your views on that? See, I think it's the most wonderful time of the year. Wait, you, you realize it's not Christmas yet, right? You know, in political campaigns, it's, it's like Xmas to me. I don't miss Christ. Really? Why, why is that? Well, you know, political promises. I just love those. So who do you like for president this election cycle? Well, you see, I don't vote, and I don't think people should vote. But no matter who wins, I'm banking on the fact that they're not going to worry about education. They're going to focus on the economy or foreign policy or health care reform. And if I really have my way, maybe we'll start another war or there'll be another White House scandal. I love those, too. Like another politician bites the dust. And personally, I don't mean to toot my own horn here, uh, but I, I've been doing pretty good with those political leaders having moral failures. Like, like you've got to admit, I, I'm doing pretty well for myself as Satan and winning again and again. Like, I haven't had a setback since Lincoln ended slavery. Well, thank you. That, that is fascinating. Let's talk now about education. One of the candidates is talking about how the U.S. has fallen behind many other nations in high school and college graduation rates. What are your views on education in the U.S.? Well, just look at the system. Every kid who's in kindergarten considers themselves to be this great artist. They, they think creatively and that their minds are really open to anything. All of them could work at Apple or create new inventions or, or this wonderful art, but within a few short years, I slowly take that away. And I'm good at it. For instance, memorization. Like, I love it. You ask them a question, and there's only one right answer. Like, they don't even have to think, and the less critical thinking, the better. If I can just get them to turn their brains off and only memorize stuff, even important facts, then me, as Satan, my job is done. And it's really not that hard. I mean, there are definitely some good teachers out there fighting for kids, but I'm way out in front. The polls say I'm winning. Now, big class size. The bigger, the better. When kids get lost in the system, guess who finds them? Yours truly. And how about this? Lower funding? I love it. I don't care what they use the money for, as long as it's not for books. Like bombs over books, baby. My three Bs. And cutting electives, like music or sports or art. Like they're just taking away the only thing that kids like to do anyway. Now they're not even going to show up at school. And let me just be clear let me be clear, I am not a fan of education. Ignorance, as they say, is bliss. And every high school dropout is a win for Mr. Satan. Hey, okay, I gotta go. All right, I gotta go. I'm not like Jesus. You can't be everywhere at once. So I'm out. Thank you. And so we sit here, and we watch that, and we hear that, and we nod our heads, and we go, yeah, that's right. 
There he is, live and in the flesh, confirming everything I've ever thought about America's public schools, right? We would say, lots of us, that the devil is absolutely at work in our public schools, especially since they took prayer out of public schools. Some of us say schools have become the devil's playground, right? And so we nod our heads and we shout amen and we're like, yep, yep, just confirms everything I've ever thought. And so we watch that and we nod our heads in agreement and then we go get in our cars and we take our kids to soccer practice or we watch that and say that and then we go pick up our kids from piano lessons or we watch that and say that and we go to the mall and pick out a new pair of jeans and we just lots of us leave it there don't we lots and lots of people we just leave it there we just go it's the way it is it's always going to be that way there's nothing I can do about it and so we just throw it into park and go on with our busy lives But I got to tell you today that Jesus Christ for president doesn't ever just leave things be, does he? Because what we know beyond the shadow of any doubt whatsoever is that, hear this please, Jesus absolutely and entirely loves public schools. Jesus absolutely and entirely loves public schools. He loves the entirety of America's public school system. Jesus loves public school students. Statistics tell us there are some 49 million public school students just in the United States of America, and Jesus loves all 49 million of them, every single one of them. He loves them desperately. He loves them entirely. Jesus loves every single public school teacher in the United States of America. 3.2 million public school teachers in the United States of America. He loves all of them. The administrators of every school district in the United States, Jesus loves them all the way up to the Department of Education. Jesus loves them, all of them. He knows the number of hairs on their head, the number of days they will live, and he loves them entirely fully. And because Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, loves public schools, because he loves all 49 million students, because he loves all 3.2 million teachers, because he loves administrators who are charged with leading our public schools, us, the church, Christians, just sitting back, throwing up our hands and saying, hope is lost, public schools are the devil's playground, that runs entirely counter to the Christ ethic that we who follow Jesus Christ are supposed to carry. Because you see, every single day of our lives, we're called and we're invited and we're challenged and we're exhorted by Jesus Christ to be influencers for him and for his kingdom. We're called to bring his kingdom everywhere we go with everything we are. Because you see, Jesus, at the end of the day, he wants all those schools and he wants all those students and he wants all those teachers and he wants all those administrators to have a chance, have a chance to see him, to have a chance to catch a glimpse of him to have a chance to know at the level of their soul how very much he loves them, what he did for them on the cross, and everything that he has in store for every person who yields their lives to him and gives themselves to following him with their everything. Jesus wants that more than anything. And so we can't ever just sit back and we can't ever just throw up our hands and we can't ever just be content to go, yeah, that's just the way it is. We can't do it. 
We don't get to. And Jesus himself in the New Testament of the Bible, he actually unpacks for us everything that it looks like for we who follow Jesus to influence the Department of Education and schools and students and teachers, administrators and the like for him. Luke chapter 13, if you have a text. If you don't, you can follow along right here. And here's what Jesus says. What else is the kingdom of God like? It is like the yeast a woman used in baking bread, making bread. Even though she put only a little yeast in three measures of flour, it permeated every part of the dough. Now, before we get into the nitty-gritty of what Jesus is showing here with the yeast and the bread dough deal, I got to call like a timeout, take a timeout and ask a timeout question of Jesus. What about all, maybe I get an amen on this, what about all the men who bake bread? Right? Like, isn't this just a blatant gender stereotype, Jesus? Right? Like, I bake bread all the time. No, I don't. Absolutely not. But some guys do. I won't do a show of hands, but some guys, I know guys in this room, bake bread. Like, the Pillsbury Doughboy is a male, for crying out loud. Lots of baking happens by males. We should get real serious, though. So Jesus is in this conversation about everything that the kingdom of God is like. And he says another thing that the kingdom of God is like. It's like yeast. Yeast that a woman uses when she's baking bread. And even though she only put this little tiny bit of yeast into a whole lot of flour. By the way, I did a little research and I found out that three measures, Jesus calls, three measures of flour is something like 50 pounds of flour. Which means that this woman who's baking this batch of bread is a burly, tough, strong, insanity workout kind of woman because she's needing 50 pounds of bread dough. And there were no kitchen aids in Jesus' day. This is a remarkable feat this woman is accomplishing. And she puts this little bit tough, tough woman, big, bulging biceps. And she puts a little yeast in 50 pounds of flour and what's it do? Jesus says it permeates, doesn't it? The yeast permeates every, pound, every part of all 50 pounds of that dough. All 50 pounds of that bread dough is, love this word, infiltrated. It's infiltrated. It's permeated. Now, most scripture translations miss this because you see the word for yeast is more accurately translated to this word leaven, L-E-A-V-E-N. You might mispronounce it and call it leaven. I'm leaven, but it's actually leaven. And you see, in the ancient world, the normal everyday method of bringing about fermentation inside bread making was you would take this small amount of old fermented dough, let's the leaven, maybe something like sourdough, you might call it, which had been reserved from the previous week's baking session, and you'd take that chunk of leaven and you would knead it into this new batch of bread dough, so that that bread would properly ferment, so that it would properly rise, so that it would be light and fluffy and airy and not like cement. And that's exactly what this woman's doing. And Jesus says, my kingdom is like this little chunk of leaven, this little ball of leaven, this little chunk of sourdough that you knead into this giant amount of flour, and that giant, this little amount of leaven permeates that giant amount of flour. And it infiltrates, and it affects, and it changes, and it quite, as a matter of fact, transforms all of this bread dough. 
Now, this story, as Jesus tells it, is really, really important when we're talking about how we as Christ followers bring about change in places like governments, in places like power structures, in schools, classrooms, departments of education, even. Because there's some of us who subscribe to some myths about how influence and change come to pass. Four of them, as a matter of fact, that some people subscribe to. See if you recognize yourself in any of these. Some people subscribe to the myth that we just can't influence change. Things are just the way they are. We can't change it. It'll just always be that way. So I'm just going to stay home and call it good. But this is a myth. It's absolutely and entirely untrue. And it's everything that Jesus' teaching about the bread-making operation gets to. Remember, it's this giant amount of flour. It's huge. By the way, 50 pounds of flour is enough flour to make enough bread for like 100 plus people. You're going to feed 100 people. This is an extraordinary amount of bread we're baking here. And you have this huge amount of flour. And you have this little tiny ball of leaven, sourdough, And when you look at all of that and when you consider the odds and you consider the ratios and you consider the proportion of leaven to new dough, you realize that simply by the numbers, this is never going to work. It's not going to work. That little ball of leaven can't do anything at all with this giant mass of flour. But what do you know? The strong woman, she works it in. The strong woman, she needs the heck out of it. And pretty soon that little tiny bit of leaven pervades every bit of that bread dough. It's everywhere. It's all throughout it. No part of the dough is left untouched by the leaven. And the leaven's pervasiveness is proved because the bread dough rises. It changes. It morphs. It becomes becomes something that's alive. It isn't static. And so sometimes we subscribe to this myth that I just can't change anything, especially the kind of change that Jesus wants to bring to bear in our world. That department is just so large. There's so many people. The power structures are so entrenched. The odds are so incredibly overwhelming. And Jesus says, no, you can. You must. You are that leaven. That's you, church. Every single one of you who follows me. And you infiltrate and you permeate and you pervade. And Jesus says, me, my life through you. Jesus, through all of us, changes stuff. One heart, one life at a time. And there's some more myths about how change comes about. Some of us subscribe to the myth that change will only come to pass because we're loud, vocal, visible, and confrontational. Some of us buy that, hook, line, and sinker. And if you don't believe that that's a myth, just go back to Jesus' little story about how this little ball of leaven changes a whole bunch of flour. And what we notice about the story is that the leaven isn't particularly loud or boisterous. It isn't very visible. It's not at all confrontational. That leaven isn't holding demonstrations. It's not engaging in letter-writing campaigns. It's not accosting leaders in hallways of power, trying to put them on the spot and catch them in half-truth. Now, I'm not at all saying that there's no time or place for peaceful demonstration. Historically, there has been. There may well be again in the future. I don't know. But the word that comes to mind when I hear Jesus talking about how exactly his kingdom influences change in this world is the word subtle. It's this word... Subtle, I love that word. Because you see, our influence as followers of Jesus in schools, even with entire systems of education, is just like that of leaven in flour. It's subtle, and it's humble, and it's winsome, and it's personable. It isn't loud, and it's not obnoxious, and it's not boisterous. It's subtle. Quite like Jesus Christ. Gentleman-like. 
The third myth about how change comes to pass in and with huge power structures is we think sometimes that we must work to change minds, right? That's what lots of us subscribe to. Like, yep, I just got to change everybody's mind. I got to help them see things my way. I got to convince them at the level of their intellect. And when I do, well, that's when things are really going to change. But that is not how kingdom of God change comes to bear. Kingdom of God transformation and change comes, watch this, only as the Holy Spirit of God. He's our partner. He's our advance team in all of this change and transformation. By the way, we're not just working on our own. The Holy Spirit is going out ahead of us and behind us and around us. And praise God for that. And the Holy Spirit of God works. And how does the Holy Spirit of God work most often? Subtly. Subtly. And the Holy Spirit of God doesn't work on people's intellect. The Holy Spirit of God works first on people's hearts. And what we know is that most direct route to changing someone's mind is for God via his Holy Spirit to change their heart because this, their head, will follow this, their heart, the seat of our being. And then the last myth we're going to talk about is how the king, about how the kingdom of God changes things. And this is a big one. Lots of us subscribe to the myth that change must come from the top down. Lots and lots of us, we think that way. And so many of us believe that and buy into that. It causes us to say, well, that means we just have to elect the quote-unquote right people so that the quote-unquote right people can then appoint the quote-unquote right people who see things my way, and then they'll just sort of hand down the quote-unquote correct worldview. They'll sort of pronounce it down from on high. A bit like a theocracy, maybe. But see, Jesus Christ, through this very brief story of a woman baking bread in her kitchen, Jesus is saying, "Uh uh-uh. That is not at all how my kingdom comes. Remember, it's not of this world. It doesn't come to be in the ways and in the shapes and in the forms that we think and we expect. Jesus, quite as a matter of fact, says the influence that I'm going to die on the cross to bring to bear, it comes to pass in ways that you just can't imagine. Leaven, little ball, giant mound of bread dough. That's how it's coming. That's how it's unfolding. Jesus' kingdom doesn't invade from the top down. It comes in quite rather a hidden way from the bottom up, from the bottom throughout invading and pervading. Remember how small the leaven is. Seemingly insignificant when you put it up next to that huge sum of flour. But what happened, it changed it. It transformed it entirely. Remade it, actually. And Jesus says, my kingdom isn't of this world. It's not going to look like you think it's going to look. It's not going to descend from the top of the power structure to the bottom of the power structure. Instead, it's going to pervade from these very, very frighteningly small beginnings, as a matter of fact, into what we know is going to be a great and eventual consummation of everything that his kingdom is meant to be, from the grassroots to the highest offices in the land, throughout schools and throughout classrooms and throughout administrative offices, all the way to the headquarters of the Department of Education, into the office of the Secretary of Education, which is quite a powerful position. And you see, one time, just to prove the point, there was this little group of disciples, quite a ragtag bunch as a matter of fact, and they were despised, actually, for preaching and declaring and for inviting people to a kingdom that was way, way too small, way, way too insignificant to ever be noticed 
up in the highest offices of the land, but then pretty soon, just as surely as a tiny, tiny piece of leaven was very significant and transformative and had this amazing effect on this large mass of dough, so too did that kingdom that that little ragtag group of disciples came to declare have a transformational effect all throughout the world. To this day, leaving nothing untouched. The person of Jesus Christ has affected history in ways that we cannot even explain nor imagine. And the unarguable truth is that Jesus loves and Jesus desires to redeem every student, every teacher, every administrator, all throughout America's public schools. And because that's true, and because the kingdom of God pervades everything it comes into contact with, church, this is for us, I think we must be, please listen carefully, we must be very, very discerning, very, very discriminating when we make a move like taking our kids out of America's public schools and putting them into Christian schools. We must be very, very discriminating, church. Now, I know firsthand lots and lots of people who have done just that. Families that have great reasons, families that have great intentions, families that have absolutely the very best in heart and mind for their kids, for their families. I applaud, as a matter of fact, parents' willingness to do whatever they have to do to provide the very best for their children, spiritually, intellectually, relationally. And so I celebrate that, I admire that, I encourage that, and church. I believe that Jesus asks us in significant fashion to consider the detrimental effect that it would have on America's public schools. Imagine if we all pulled our Christian kids out of public schools and enrolled them in Christian schools. Imagine the detrimental effect that that would have. Church, we must take this very, very seriously. In the early days of Journey, lots of you know, because you were around, we met for five years at Heritage Christian School. We rented that facility. It was a fantastic place for us to get ourselves established. Five years we were there. They were a fantastic partner to us. And I just want to say, kind of as an aside, I am so, so sorry that some jerk decided to light that place on fire. I'm sorry, I just don't know what else to call that person. Really, like, like, uh, words elude me. Evil is all I know to call that. that. A person would decide, here's this fantastic facility being used in great ways by God, let's try to burn it down. I, I, just, I just can't imagine, and I'm so sorry, and we around here are trying to help them the best we can. Not only was the school and hundreds of students displaced, there's a church that was meeting there. They would be meeting there right now if the place hadn't burned down, but it did. And so now that church meets in the pastor's backyard, and that's not the best solution. We're trying to lend a hand with that the best we can. So would you pray, please, for Heritage Christian? Would you pray for that church and like, get around it? Like if There's an opportunity for you to get around helping them rebuild and so... I invite and encourage you to get around. We're so grateful for the years that they helped us and we want to be a good partner uh, in return. In the early days of Journey, though, because we met there, people would see us around there different times. They knew we had these school-age kids and so people would just assume that because Journey met there, because we rented that space, well, then they just assumed that our kids went to school there. Every once in a while, somebody would stop me and ask me if that's where our kids went to school. And I'd say, no, as a matter of fact, our kids go to public schools. And then I'd 
take it as a teaching opportunity. I'm a preacher, and so I talk, right? That's what I do, and so I would talk to them, and I'd say, look, the Hopkins family, we put a high value on education in our family. We want the very best education for our kids, and at the same time we want a great education for our kids, we really, really want our kids to understand what it looks like and feels like and is to have an influence for Jesus Christ in places where not everyone is down with Christianity. And so I'd say, for us, for the Hopkins, we're going to take that every single year, year by year, every kid, one by one by one, for crying out loud, we keep adding them, one by one by one. And I said, if we ever have a kid for whom the public school just isn't gelling well, then we're going to do whatever we have to do so that they're in a great place, educationally, relationally, spiritually, and that includes and goes up to putting them in private Christian school. But as for the Hopkins, our default position is we want our kids in public schools because of this very high value we put on cultivating their witness for Christ. We actually want our kids to be godly leaven in settings where it isn't necessarily easy or convenient to follow Jesus. And that's just us. That's the Hopkins. Now, I know some of you, you've counted the cost and you said it's private Christian schools for our kids or some of our kids. And I commend, absolutely commend your decision. I hold that decision in very, very high regard, and I firmly believe that we as the church, we as Christians, shouldn't just abandon the American public school system in mass, but rather I'm convinced to my core that we should, all of us, every single day, wake up and we should say, God, how do you want to use my family? How do you want to use my kids to be godly leaven in the transformation of our public schools into the kinds of environments that you, God, would have them to be. How, God, do you want to use us? And so every single day, our kids go off to school and they have an assignment. And it is an assignment from us and it's, a, it's an assignment from the God of the universe who wants to use them in the same way that Jesus says, this little chunk of leaven, this little chunk of yeast, this little chunk of sourdough affects this giant mound of flour. And I gotta take us one more place. You have one more place in you this morning? Yeah, one more place in here. I've got to take us one more place as we talk about Jesus presiding over the Department of Education, schools, teachers, classrooms, and students. Mark 12.30. Very familiar verse to lots and lots of us, I'm sure. Some religious teachers one day, religious leaders, they were putting Jesus quite on the spot. And they were trying to get him to sort of err in what he said was the most important thing in the world the most important teaching, the most important commandment. And so they, put it, they ask him this question, put him on the spot, and Jesus answers quite spectacularly. And you must, here's what he says, this is the most important thing in all the world. You must love the Lord your God. The most important thing in all the world. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. You might circle that, all your mind and all your strength. The most important thing in the world, Jesus says it's this. It's loving the Lord your God with all of you. And lots of times we think that the most important thing in the world is something else other than that, right? And lots of people are running around living that way. And Jesus just calls us right back to it. Here it is, the most important thing in the world. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, underscore circle, especially that one, all your mind and all your strength. But see, we, the church, Christians, we haven't always been the most open to loving the Lord our God with all of our minds, have we? John Ortberg, in his book, Who Is This Man? He talks about how most people these days believe that folks in medieval times thought that the earth was flat. You know this, right? 
But I'm here today to tell you that that wasn't actually the case. Truth be told, educated people as far back as the Middle Ages, they knew that the earth was round. This flat earth concept was a myth that was written about by novelist Washington Irving, American novelist Washington Irving. And in a story, he made up a trial where church leaders actually charged Christopher Columbus for heresy for teaching that the world was round. And what happened was that Irving's myth, it caught traction. That's what happens with myths, right? And it caught traction in part because it reinforces the stereotype that we, the church, were historically anti-science, historically anti-intellectual. That's a badge we've kind of earned. And Ortberg suggests, loving God with all of our mind, we as the church, we got to get around this. It means we follow truth ruthlessly, church. Wherever the truth leads, we follow it, we pursue it doggedly. It means we embrace truth, whether it comes from the Bible, or whether it comes from science, or whether it comes from an atheist, for that matter. Because anti-intellectualism is actually anti-Christian, Ortberg suggests. But we in the church, we in Christianity sometimes, we're quick, very quick to judge other disciplines, especially science based on incorrect assumptions. Just one example, early Christian reformers, they rejected the idea of a heliocentric solar system because they just assumed right at the outset that it contradicted scripture. They rejected the idea that the sun was at the center of our solar system because why? Because the Bible didn't say it was. It wasn't explicitly written in the scriptures and so they just, out of hand, dismissed it. But what happened was within two generations of those guys, every single leader in the reformed church accepted the new solar system view. Why? Because the scientific evidence demanded that they reevaluate these old assumptions on what the Bible does and doesn't say implicitly or explicitly. Which where this goes for us is it becomes a very strong cautionary note to we who follow Jesus about please move very, very cautiously before you ever pass theological judgment on scientific theories. Loving God with our entire mind, loving God with all our mind, demands it, actually. Another way that we love God with all our mind is we seek to answer the work of people who disagree with us. We ought not burn books or ban books or blacklist authors just because they disagree with us, just because they don't see things our way. We don't ever have to be nervous about where a book might lead if and when we're reading to sincerely seek truth. Loving God with all of our minds means we read the works of people who disagree. I do this with regularity. I read people who are opposed to Christ, opposed to the church, opposed to Christian work, And so, why? Because it sharpens me. It makes me better. It makes all of us better. It's just one little part of what it looks like to love God with all of our minds. And all of us, we're supposed to be lifelong learners, right? It's like, till the dying day, we're learning and growing. And loving God with all of our mind means that we never, never, ever, ever, whether we're a student in school or whether we're 75 years old, we never ever just settle for the easy answer. And Christians for a lot of years have really just settled for the easy answer. But loving God with all our minds means we ought to think critically, very, very critically. And we pursue and we dig and we mine for truth, even when the truth pushes the comfort level of our faith. Because at the end of the day, all truth is actually God's truth. And I want his truth and I want his answer and I want to love him with all of my mind, not just a little bit of our mind. 
Jesus says, loving me with all of you means you engage your entire being, all of your mind. We don't settle for easy answers. People who love God with all their mind, they regularly answer questions like this. I don't know. I don't know. And then you say, I'm going to roll up my sleeves and I'm going to pursue the truth and I'm going to figure that out and I'm going to get back to you with an answer. You don't pretend like you know when you don't know. You, you admit when you don't know. And then you pursue the truth. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Take your stuff and set it aside if you would please. And I just invite you to close your eyes and bow your heads and go to prayer. I invite you to think on all of this. Jesus, I ask for us, every single one of us, that we would be the godly leaven in the big old mound of bread dough. That Jesus, we would hear and we would understand your assignments to us to bring influence and to bring transformation, to bring actually your life into every single place we go including and especially America's public schools. God, may we not ever be people who just throw in the towel, who just give up, who just say, hope is lost. But that we would hold out your hope, Jesus, the hope of your transformation, the hope of your love for some 49 million public school students in America, your hope for some 3.2 million public school teachers in America. Hold out your hope for every administrator of every school district, every department of education in this country of ours. And God, that you would have your way, that your kingdom would pervade and invade subtly, powerfully with your life. Use us, please Jesus. We count it a privilege that you would use us for your work. What a delight. What a delight.